This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Thursday, February 2nd. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It's a big week at the Athletic. Keith's latest top 100 prospects list has dropped. And as you can imagine, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that list and maybe even some of the comments on that list. Actually, less about the comments and more about the list itself. Never read the comments. Actually, the comments were mostly very nice, to be honest. Like a very small number of people... Soiled themselves, and the vast majority were complimentary or asked really good questions. Yeah, I, I think most people want to just learn more about the process or why a thing is a certain way. It's not, it's less of mm-hmm. you're an idiot. <laughs> it's less of that. Which I'm happy in, to talk about. Yeah, which is really good. So, a lot of graduations, as you pointed out, at the top of the list. Big changes really up and down for a top 100. You get that every year anyway, but this seemed to be more overhaul than usual. Just to give everybody a sense of the top five, Corbin Carroll, Gunnar Henderson, Jackson Churio, Ellie De La Cruz, Jordan Walker are the new top five after uh, the full re-rack. And we have talked a lot on this show about the quality of the Diamondback system, right? It's not just Corbin Carroll. It's Corbin Carroll and Jordan Lawler, both in the top 10. It's Drew Jones inside your top 20. It's Brandon Fott inside the top 40. And even Ryan Nelson made the top 100. And these guys mostly are ready to contribute right now. So this is an Arizona team that could be primed to surprise some people, even though they're in a difficult NL West in 2023. Yeah. And they had, um, I said one guy who was, I don't, I don't rank the next 40 or 50, but you know, in my mind, obviously like I, I do have some idea there's Blake Walston is somewhere there. Um, I think he made mild progress this year rather than big progress. So that's six guys who I would consider truly in the upper tier of their system. And they are one of the most top heavy of the good systems in baseball. Cause I do think there's a good system. If you're simply saying how much value long-term on-field value is there in the players in the farm system, that's five guys who all project to pretty good roles. Three of them might be stars. I mean, if you've got three guys in your system who could all be legitimate stars, five to six war a year type players for many years, who all three of them, at least right now, play positions in the middle of the diamond, that's a lot of value. And so, you know, when I'm considering how to rank the farm systems, which I guess will probably be up um, around the time this airs, this is released anyway. Um, Arizona is the one that kind of stands out among the top 10 systems to me in that, again, a lot of their value is concentrated in just a few players. So the other way to look at that is if obviously all three of those guys have had freak shoulder injuries. You know, if one of them has a, you know, another significant injury that derails his path or, or even, you know, say that somebody has one that just like takes them out of the middle of the diamond, for example. It's easier to see a system like that go awry because they're depending so much on on fewer players. But I also try to acknowledge, yeah, that's that's three position players who might be superstars, and we got to credit the system appropriately for that. And Corbin Carroll, he agrees at, at number one. Bias categories with your statements on the Diamondbacks Jerk. system. <laughs> Corbin Carroll debuted Corbin at the Carroll. end of last season. Yeah, yeah. Bias cat is the jerk, not Corbin Carroll. Corbin Carroll showed a little less pop than expected late in the year with the underlying metrics. It was a 5.5% barrel rate. We're talking about 115 plate appearances for a guy that was 21 years old in late August. I mean, that's really not bad. Um, So I'm just curious about the longer term outlook for Carroll for you. There's plenty of speed. He's going to stay in center field. Where do you think the power actually ends up for Carroll against big league pitching as he continues to mature? I think it's legit. Like, I actually think it is 25 homer power. He could round that up a little bit because obviously he plays in Arizona. It's a pretty good place to hit. He's going to have a few work games in Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I think it's real. And I know a lot of people dinged him because he's on the smaller side. People dinged him in the draft. You go back to the 2019 draft. He was fourth on my board and went 16th. Um, and I really think... of that Delta there, if not more, is because he's like 5'10". 
maybe even a little shorter than that. Um, and I think also there was a little bit of uh, he's a high school player in Seattle and he went to a prep school. So the competition he faced in that spring was pretty terrible. Um, he'd look good in showcases the previous summer and fall. So there was some we'd seen him hit a little bit against better pitching. But to me, it was you're telling me this guy has pretty much all the tools, maybe plus, And you like the kid and you like how he plays and you think he's got a really good approach. And the knock is just that he's 5'10". He's not 5'2", right? He's not, or he's not built like me, right? He's really strong. I'm in. And we've seen short guys hit 30 homers, right? Alex Bregman is not, he's shorter than Corbin Carroll. And obviously that's not been an issue for him. Jose Altuve is obviously extreme outlier, like love bringing him up. But just another example of you can be short and hit for power. They're, you have to do other things. But Carroll showed us power even when he was an amateur. So I was not excessively worried even at the time um, that he wouldn't hit for power. And I think all he's done in pro ball and what he did in the majors last year showed us. Now, there's there's power there. And he's hitting the ball hard. Both he and Henderson showed us in their cups of coffee last year, at the end of last year. These guys hit the ball really hard. And when you do that and you've got the swing that's going to put the ball in the seats – and you've got a good approach with both both of those guys do, and you know we've we've seen a lot of them. We see them; it's consistently good quality at bats. Yeah, we're these these are the ones to bet on, and bet on them getting to that towards that power ceiling. Maybe it's you know if you told me one of those guys is twenty homers, but it's forty doubles, and the other guy it's more like thirty doubles and twenty six homers, something like that. Sure, right? That's all within the margin of error for me. These are not 10 to 15 homer guys. It'd be very surprised if that's what they were, especially once they get a year or two under their belts. Um, I think both these guys are going to be superstars and and they would probably be my bets for rookie of the year right now. Obviously, that depends on who else gets guaranteed jobs. So much of rookie of the year depends on playing time, but they should be the favorites right now if you were betting on such things. Yeah, timing really is everything for the rookie of the year awards. And we did see a better barrel rate from Gunnar Henderson. I, I think... When I look at the Orioles, Keith, I, I thought entering last year, it was really a big prove-it year for their system. And a lot of guys mm-hmm. advanced and thrived at higher levels. I think a big part of their their window to possibly close the gap on the other teams in the AL East is dependent upon that next wave of prospects, having a couple of guys that come up at some point this year and upgrade a couple of spots on this roster. So of the prospects that are lower on this list from the Orioles system, who do you think is most likely to offer up something that pushes the Orioles a little further up in that win total column this season? So, and they had six guys on my top 100 and one on my just missed list. You know, Henderson's on the club. Uh, Michael Ice has indicated Grayson Rodriguez will be on the club for opening day, which he should be. He should have debuted last year, really. Um, and I think it, there's, I haven't, I don't, will not countenance any argument that he's not one of the five best starters in the system right now in terms of helping the major league team. So those two right there uh, help immediately. And I'd be surprised if the team wasn't six wins better just for those two guys, especially given who they're, who's at-bats slash innings they're replacing ultimately. I think you will also see a couple of other guys debut. Joey Ortiz made my top 100. I think he ends up debuting at some point this year. He is of their upper level shortstops, the best defender better than Henderson who I, who can play shortstop, but I think he's elite over at third base. If that's the left side of your infield by the middle of the season, you're doing pretty well. And Ortiz after a swing change and then recovery from a pretty significant shoulder injury, second half of last year, he was one of the best hitters anywhere in the minors. And I, I think it's real enough. I don't think he's, um, I don't think he's MVP level good, but I think he can really hit. I think there's some more power there and he can really, really play shortstop. That's an incredible left side of the infield defense. I think a couple other guys will debut. Jordan Westberg made the list. Colton Kowser on the just missed list. Connor Norby who's just a player I really, really like watching. All three of those guys are going to be ready to contribute to the major league roster at some point this season. Whether they do and how much may depend more on the health and production of other players already there. You know, if Ortiz doesn't produce or gets hurt again, that creates opportunity for one of these other guys maybe to come up. Maybe Westberg comes up and plays third and they slide Henderson back over to short. The nice thing is they have options. I mean, imagine if you told an Orioles fan five years ago uh, when they were sort of approaching the bottom that, hey, it's things look really bad right now, but you're going to have 
so many options for major league shortstop in 2023 that you're not going to know what to how to give everybody the appropriate amount of playing time. Like, that's a pretty good problem to have. And why I think Orioles fans should be pretty optimistic, not, to, not even just about 23, but what the next three or four years are, are going to hold for this club. Yeah, it should be a fun team to watch on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, which is something we haven't said about the Orioles in a little while. Uh, D.L. Hall, I think, is also kind of important to them, too, because there's more weakness on the pitching side. Yep. If you're betting on it right now, does D.L. Hall stick as a starter in the next three seasons in Baltimore? I'm still betting yes. He's on my top 100, which is betting yes. This guy is too athletic. Um to and his stuff is too good for him not to be a starter for him not to bring the walk rate down because that's it that is the only thing like this guy was throwing strikes we'd be talking about him as a two or better and he would be right there with rodriguez i think i would argue if you're just going on the quality of their three best pitches hall might be a little bit ahead of rodriguez but rodriguez does a lot of strikes and hall doesn't and that's the difference i actually think hall is the better pure athlete he might have the better delivery but he doesn't do it and at a certain point it's just okay well grayson rodriguez is doing it hall's not okay that's it i mean that puts that puts rodriguez ahead for me it's why rodriguez is going to be in apparently in that opening day rotation and deserves it he should be and he will help that team this year hall is much more of a wild card for me i hope it's there it is really really good stuff um for a left-hander to have two real weapons and then there's off-speed stuff and also have premium velocity there's just not a lot of left-handed pitchers anywhere in the minors who can match him for for a for the completeness of the arsenal but you got to throw more strikes and we saw it a little bit in the majors last year we saw it in triple a with him last year and i i hate giving up on a guy like that when the athleticism and the delivery are where his are, where they don't point to uh, towards you know, chronic control problems. Oh, he's never going to have command because I don't like the delivery. He doesn't repeat it, et cetera. This isn't him. I mean, at some point, it's there's no reason you're not throwing strikes. So figure it out. Yeah, could be a really big boost to that rotation if it does, in fact, work for D.L. Hall. I like that they're going to give Grayson Rodriguez that opportunity right from the start this year, at least, again, based on those comments from Mike Elias. Because if you have a pitching prospect you believe is major league ready and even if the innings are going to be limited because of past injuries you know however you want to manage someone's workload why not maximize those innings early in the year relatively early because I think you run the risk of someone getting hurt if you play them and if you get that slow player out and you're managing innings at triple a and then you bring guy up in May or June you might not even get the innings you want an injury could happen after you call that player up and you don't even hit the innings total you want because you were holding innings back early in the season. So I think at least with Rodriguez, get as much as you can from him while you can. If he hits his season cap or you have to manage him a little bit mid season, that's fine because your best path to being a playoff team. If you're going to get the last wild card is having Grayson Rodriguez throw as many oh, innings yeah. as he reasonably can. And also he, it wasn't an arm injury last year. It was an oblique. And I mean, apparently he was saying this was secondhand, like other players, his teammates were telling scouts he wants to pitch. He feels fine. He thinks they're being overly conservative. Now, I understand he's their best pitching prospect and the system is not strong when it comes to starting pitching. It's very, very heavy towards position players, but it's not like he is recovering from an elbow or shoulder issue or something related that would mean that he couldn't, that he that you'd be worried about him re-aggravating an injury or injuring it more acutely uh he's it was an oblique thing so he could i mean honestly he probably i was surprised they didn't consider having him run out to fall league a little bit just to put a few more innings on him but i also don't think there's anything here that says he can't throw whatever pick your number 120 innings next year 110 120 you know space him out skip some starts give him the extra day of rest where you can but i mean they've always treated him with kid gloves and at some point that has to stop because otherwise you're just not getting the production out of him that he's capable of i think he can do more he can pitch he really doesn't pitch deep into starts and there's no reason he can't i don't see any reason that he can't do that yeah i wonder if we'll see something like what the rays did with shane mcclanahan as far as the the first year workload on an in-start sort of basis that might be a reasonable 
expectation for how Rodriguez gets to his 125, 130 innings, whatever that number ends up being. It's probably going to be with those tighter in-start restrictions. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's talk about a couple of the biggest movers into that top five. Jackson Churio, an outfield prospect in the Brewers organization, and Ellie De La Cruz, he made last year's list. I think he was in the 60s, if I remember correctly, on the first list last year. Start with Churio, who I think by most measures throughout last season was the guy that was impressing scouts the most. Like if you talk to someone and said, who have you seen that has just completely opened your eyes? Churio was very frequently the answer to that sort of question. Mm -hmm. So what is it that has enabled him to make the leap to the elite of the elite part of prospectless? It is, it's a combination of things, but I do think them just choosing, he was a shortstop when he signed, he even his first in the DSL last year, he was still playing. He, they mostly moved him to the outfield. He still played a little bit in the infield. That's done. He took to center field immediately. And from talking both to Brewers people and to scouts, the sense is, oh yeah, this is where he, probably should have been all alone. There's no more. He's not worrying about or thinking about or spending a lot of time working on defense. This was much more, hey, just go hit. And for him to hit and make the quality of contact that he was making as an 18-year-old, he really could have spent the whole year in low A, except he was just too good. They had to promote him out of there. He slugged 600 and showed a pretty good idea of the strike zone for a kid who was the age of a high school senior, right? And then they move him up to high A, and he's still pretty good there. I mean, there's some fall off in performance, but was still hitting for power. And then they bumped him up again to double A, where obviously then finally he struggled. He was 18 in the double A Southern League. That's pretty remarkable. And kids who do that, who produce like that at that young of an age, at levels, at those full season levels where he was typically one of the youngest players, maybe the youngest player at the entire level. Uh, that is such a marker of future greatness. And it's backed up by tools. He's got bat speed. He has running speed. He shows you power. And the guy had 20 home runs as an 18-year-old who hasn't even really filled out yet. Um, and he's got great feel. And people, ab scouts absolutely rave about his instincts and the way he plays the game, the energy that he brings. It, there's so many things tangible and less tangible that mark him as a potential future star. I, I, if you're just talking about long-term upside, he and De La Cruz might actually have more than Carolyn Henderson. It's just Carolyn Henderson, they're there. They're in the big leagues and they have proved it far more through their performance at the upper levels, plus a little bit in the majors last year. So I wasn't going to do that. That would have been I think kind of contrarian to bump him up higher, but I don't think it's out of the question. We're going to get to mid-May, maybe earlier. Carol and Henderson are going to have graduated. And so if you just go by default, Churio is the best prospect in the minors and uh, maybe on May 1st. And that sounds fine. Yeah. Churio almost seems like he's putting together the kind of resume where he sets his own timetable for the arrival yeah. in the big leagues. You just say, Oh, whatever, whatever ETA we had when he, first signed that is blown out of the water because everything is more advanced uh, than expected it's kind of funny that it's happening in an organization with a bunch of big league ready outfielders a bunch of guys that need yeah. to get looks in milwaukee just to figure out what part of the the long-term plan they're going to have garrett mitchell who debuted last year we'll probably see sal freelich this year might see joy weimer this year too uh, it's um, Kind of an amazing group of, of young players, but Chorio could just leapfrog all of them at some point once he's ready, and then he becomes the priority guy and someone gets bumped from that group. Maybe there's a, a trade already kind of in the works at some point, but Ellie De La Cruz is fun because you've got an 80 power grade and an 80 speed grade on him. 
How often do you give 80s for power and speed like that? <laughs> that's got to be rare, right? I mean, there's been a while. Yeah. I mean, I don't like throwing those around because one, because I think people who don't really know, who don't really know players like to throw those around, right? And they lose their meaning. They lose their meaning if they're used incorrectly. And, you know, it's it's easy to find a single 80 grade on someone, right? An 80 runner. Well, there's, there's actually a few of those guys kicking around. Um, there's more 20 runners, but there's a few 80s kicking around. 80 raw power has become easier, right? Frankly, it's become more common. I mean, maybe we should just use the use it less, you know, it the bar to have 80 power on a relative in relative terms maybe has changed. But you can find that. It's not always 80 game power. And that's to me the obviously that's the distinction worth making. Find guys with an 80 fastball, right? There are guys who throw 100. You know, finding that individually is not that uncommon. It's rare, but not so much so you're like, oh my God, I saw a guy with 80 speed today. And it's not like that. But a guy who's got two 80s, that's a lot less common. And the power speed combination is not one that naturally goes together. And I, you know, I think I said in the write-up, if you're just talking about straight upside, this is he's he's it. If you're just ranking on upside, that's the number one prospect in baseball. The reason he's fourth and not first is because they're swing and miss. And he's too get he's actually just a little too good a hitter at this point where he expands the zone and goes after pitches that he just needs to let go. But he's good enough that he thinks he can hit a lot of them and he can hit some of them. And those are pitches he's gonna have to learn to let go by him. You know, a year ago I said, look, this guy's tooled out. But so was Reggie Abercrombie, and he never figured out the strike zone. Dela Cruz looked a lot better last year. He's not a finished product at all, but he looked better than I'm no longer looking at him and saying, eh, this guy might never get out of double A. This guy's going to play in the big leagues. Now, he could play in the big leagues and never figure it out up there. That's quite possible. And that's why he's fourth and not first. But also, if he does figure it out, he's going to be the best player in baseball at some, at some point in his career. Yeah, I mean, the... The output's going to be absurd if, if what he's doing moving through the minor leagues is any indication. And you look at the K rate, 30% at low A, high A, and double A. That is definitely the swing and miss you're talking about. When you see it as a player being too aggressive, reaching at pitches outside the zone, that seems to be a lot more correctable than getting beat in the zone, right? Compared to someone who gets beat yes. with breaking balls that are in the zone or high fastballs in and around the zone, those seem like more difficult flaws to fix. This is more of a swing decision problem than a plate coverage or pitch recognition problem. I would feel much better about a player, you know, if I put on my you know, pretend player development hat, feel much better about teaching a player to lay off pitches out of the zone, um, particularly well out of the zone, than trying to cut down an in-zone swing and miss which is not to say it can't be done it's just that it's a greater challenge to help guys who are showing in zone miss um there are tools that teams use you know to try to work with players on all of those things that involve identifying pitch types and pitch locations sooner you know expected pitch locations out of a pitcher's hand but not every player can execute on that and i think it's a simpler thing to recognize that pitch is going to be out of the strike zone. That's a much bigger thing than that pitch is likely to be in the zone, but it's going to be in a maybe in a quadrant or or smaller segment of the zone where you struggle more to make contact. Reds had four players, I believe, inside your top 100. Ellie De La Cruz, Cam Collier up at 17. No LV Marte, who they got in that big trade with the Mariners and Edwin Arroyo, who also came over in that same deal. That was the Luis Castillo trade. The future does look pretty bright in Cincinnati, even if the, the present is more tuning in when Hunter Green pitches, tuning in when Nick Lodolo pitches, and then just kind of averting your eyes on the, the other three days of the week. But um, how yeah. do you see this core sort of coming up together? When you wrote about Marte, you don't see him sticking at shortstop at all, so you can pretty safely plan on him playing somewhere else. But how else do you see this this group kind of fitting together? Do you see all four of them Sticking around in Cincinnati, you think it's a reasonable proposition to just shift them or maybe one guy falls short of expectations. The other three are all above average regulars together. Well, the problem is they have 
four. So they, they really lack pitching and neither green nor Lodolo has been durable at all. I feel better about green going forward, staying healthy than Lodolo, whose delivery, I mean, he's four IL stints, I think, in the last two years. And I just think that's going to keep happening, unfortunately. Um, where so they're and they don't have a lot of clear starting pitching in the system, too. I think they have two guys maybe in my top 20 where I say this guy's definitely a big league starter. And then it's a lot of other guys. Maybe he's a starter, maybe he's a reliever. Like they they are lacking there. They've drafted quite well. I think, and I think they did pretty well in the trades. Um, it, it supposedly there's a rumor they could have had Bryce Miller as uh, the pitcher in one of those. Tra- I think it was the first trade with Seattle and didn't and picked Connor Phillips instead. I don't know if that's true. If it's true, it's not good. Um, but back to their their four top 100 guys are two shortstops, a shortstop who needs to go to third base, and a third baseman. So someone's going to have to move somewhere and. Ellie could play anywhere. I mean, they could probably put Ellie in center with his speed. Also, he's kind of big for shortstop. So that might be the easiest thing to solve. Marte is the one who's a bit of a, I think, an issue. Because I think Collier's, if he's the player I think he is, the Reds think he is. And I know a few scouts who agreed with me where I had him as the second best prospect in the draft. He was 17 and hitting better competition in junior college than any high school player in the draft was. So I'm not really sure what the objection is. but. Anyway, I think Collier stays at third, and Marte might stay at third. He might even be okay at third, but he's a little bit less of a prospect as a hitter, and he's probably less likely to be an average or better defender at third. So to me, he might be the one you either slide to another position or who ends up getting traded at some point. So Arroyo stays, if everybody works out, Arroyo stays at short, Ellie maybe goes to center, Collier stays at third, and Marte's the one you you move in one sense or another to figure to fit him in by the way with ellie de la cruz listed at 6'5 200 pounds i picture like the, the carlos gomez body type carlos gomez is one of those guys that when you looked at him you, you'd see him kind of standing around for the game you're like he's pretty big and you watch him run you're like he runs really well for someone really that well big. so that that's the that's the package i'm expecting how the heck does o'neill cruz run the way that he runs move the way that he moves you know, I still don't think there's any chance Cruz stays at shortstop long term, and the early returns on his defense, at least, are not great. Hits the ball extremely, extremely hard, and he runs really well. Like he's obviously there's lots of things to like about O'Neill Cruz. He ain't a shortstop. Now, Ellie is not as tall. He might be a tick faster, but the odds are also against him staying at shortstop. There's just not a lot of six five or taller shortstops ever who've even played it a little bit in major league history. Uh, six four is a is kind of pushing it but we at least see a few more guys who've done that and there are a couple of very good reasons for it so i am of the opinion that um moving ellie also maybe it's a jackson churio thing right maybe it's just better for him just go play center you can run everything down you'll be fine and then we can work more on the much more critical thing of helping with ball strike recognition so you're making better swing decisions at the plate Let's talk about a little bit of pitching yuri perez was your highest ranked pitcher on this list came in at number 10 you know, the classic 6'8 pitcher at age 20. Like, what? what is going on? Like, this is, we saw him in the Futures game, and mm-hmm. it was every bit as electric in the brief time we got to see him pitch in that game as I was hoping. What do you do if you're the Marlins? When is he ready, and, and how do you manage him knowing that there's a true number one starter ceiling here? And just to be clear with everyone, too, who's, you know, people looking at the list, how do you have so-and-so behind this guy? I have four pitchers, I think, in a five five spot run on the list. If you want to argue that one of those other guys is the best pitching prospect in baseball, go right ahead. This is an opinion. I do not feel strongly. The difference between the guy who's number 10 and the guy who's number 12 on my list is not that big. Uh, And people get very hung up. How can you say Yuri Perez is better? You know what? I I think he's better. I think that arm slot is going to be so, so hard for right-handed hitters to pick up. And he is... 6'8, he might be 6'9. He extends well. Like, that is it. And the stuff that comes out is filthy. It's premium, premium stuff with the elements for ridiculous deception as well. He's got to stay healthy. They're not at 6'9, 6'8 pitchers. Yep. The ones who stick tend to be really good, but some of them get hurt. There's absolutely risk associated with him. But one, I think it's a number one starter. 
Two, I don't think he's that far away. I'm not even sure if I'm the Marlins, if I'm thinking I don't want him to spend a ton of time in the minors because predicting the long-term health of any pitcher who throws hard, regardless of body, delivery, athleticism, et cetera, is kind of a fool's errand. I might just say, you know what, we this guy should be in our big league rotation by the second half of this year because the stuff is now and he does throw strikes. And for a guy with, you know, who's really long-limbed, he repeats the delivery pretty well. I would be somewhat incautious in terms of promoting this guy because I think he's too good to leave him in the minors for long. And I mean, I think I can make the same argument I did, you know, Grayson is coming. Kyle Harrison's another one, the top lefty I have on the list where the delivery isn't great. The stuff that comes out is absurd. Hitters do not see the ball at all. I think because of the funk in that delivery, he should see the majors this year. He was so good in double a last year. Anyway, when guys are are doing what they're doing in double a and they throw that hard, and they're throwing strikes, I, I wouldn't wait. I wouldn't play service time games, and I certainly wouldn't be thinking, we got to keep this guy healthy for the next 10 years. Nobody knows how to do that. So if, especially if you're trying to be even a little bit competitive in the short term, bring him up. The only one who's an exception is Andrew Painter, who's just for, he's further behind, right? He hasn't pitched as much. He was elite in AA for about a month at the end of the season. He has less experience at the higher levels. But he's also really, really good. And if you want to argue he's the best pitching prospect in baseball right now, go right ahead. He's really good. I'm fine with any of those four guys being the best pitching prospect on your personal list. This is my order. I don't feel that strongly about about it that I would really argue with anybody over it. I think what's interesting about this group is they all could make near immediate impacts. I think of all of them, Andrew Painter might have the easiest path into the big leagues right now because of his his major league team's back-end rotation options. It's basically yeah. Bailey Falter in the fifth spot in the rotation. You look at San Francisco where Kyle Harrison's trying to break through. They get a few more established veterans there, so you can kind of see, oh, we'll wait a month, see what happens, see who gets hurt. But with Painter, I kind of think they could go into spring training, and if he pitches really well, they could talk themselves into him being the number five starter right out of the gate, even though he has a little less experience in the upper levels. Yeah, they're talking about it. Um, I don't know. I, I never know how much of that is real or how much is, you know, one coach says something and it just acquire, you know, rumors have high velocity when there's especially when there's no games. So all we can do is gossip, but it really makes me hesitant because one, because he's got so little experience above a ball and two, because I think if you are a contender and they're more of a contender than Baltimore. Baltimore is obviously trying to get to the playoffs this year. So I'm not dismissing them as a contender, but the Phillies went to the World Series and they're trying to get back to the World Series. And I think anything less than that is going to be seen as a little bit of a letdown, even if it is the most likely outcome. So putting Painter in the big league rotation early, there's a couple of ways that that can go wrong. One of which is that he pitches pretty well. He's better than your other options. But you have a seven-month season, essentially, right? Because you're trying to play into October. And how do you manage that? He He's not going to throw 200 innings in this calendar year. That's just not on the table. They shut him down for a week in June. They just skipped a start to try to manage his workload and take a little pressure off of him. Nothing was hurt, but they were trying to you know do like basic load management, like a lot of teams do at this point. And I don't know how you can do that one year and then have a guy make 30 starts for you plus plus playoffs the next year. I think it's better for them, especially because usually you can get away without a fifth starter for the first couple of weeks of the season. You can fake it with a couple of guys, maybe some kind of tandem, a couple of bulk innings guys. Let Painter start at double A, or even let him start at triple A if you think he's that advanced and have him come up in mid-May or so. Let him carve up some minor league hitters. It's not going to hurt him, but you can also manage his workload a lot more carefully there. It's just so much harder to do that on a big league team when you're also trying to win at the same time. Yeah, more strain on the bullpen too. You need to have the right mix of players, the options available and really map that out if you decide to use someone that you can't have work like a traditional starter. Some teams do it well. Some teams have the depth to do it. Some teams plan for it accordingly. I don't know if the Phillies have that sort of depth. That's more of a, a question than something that I, I'd feel good about at this point. I always like looking at these lists and trying to figure out who's going to make the biggest impact over the course of this season. And I think... The Guardians have a lot of guys that could come up this year, Keith. And one of them is actually someone that turned things around in a big way last year. Bo Naylor really kind of put his mm -hmm. career back on track last season. They seem to have a pretty clear path for him behind the play, but it's not just Naylor. 
I mean, you've got, I think, six Guardians in the top 55. You get Naylor, Brian Rocchio, George Valera, Daniel Espino missed a lot of time with injuries last year. Tanner Bibby, who you've been talking up for probably a year plus now, and Gavin Williams. Am I out of my mind if I look at that group and say we could see all six of those guys at some point in the big leagues this year? Yeah, and Espino, by the way, if he's healthy, so he went out with a knee injury and while trying to come back from the knee injury, felt something in his shoulder and the Guardians just shut him down. He just never came back. Um, if you could promise me he was as healthy now as he was on like April 15th of last year, he is actually the best pitching prospect in baseball. But he's in the 30s on my list, I think, maybe a little somewhere around there, because I just don't know. And because shoulders are scary, right? I don't know how serious the injury was. He didn't have surgery. The Guardians say he's fine. He's going to be back. But yeah, that's pretty scary. The guy threw four, I mean, his four starts last spring were high comedy. Like it looked like he might get to the big leagues in time to not even be on my list this year. And then the injuries happened. It is ridiculous. It is number one starter stuff, package, feel, command. And he's grown tremendously as a pitcher too. Guys who saw him multiple times over the course of 2021 said you could really see his development as a pitcher in terms of the art of using all your stuff, not just trying to blow guys away with velocity, setting guys up, understanding the count, et cetera, everything you could possibly want in a young pitching prospect. So there is, you know, in no way am I saying he's, he's not less than that. Now it's an injury question and guys like that who go out and don't come back that I find that very, very hard to, to know what to do with them on these rankings. So I can tell you, I mean, I like having the opportunity to continue to explain too, to say, no, 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 I'm not saying he's bad. He's worse. I'm saying, I just don't know what his health is like and what his long-term outlook is going to be. But in theory, if he's healthy, he and the other two pitchers you mentioned could all see the big leagues this year. And Bo Naylor could see the big leagues this year. And Will Brennan wasn't on my top 100 or just missed list, but he could see the majors. He seems likely to see the majors this year. Brian Rocchio and George Valera are not that far behind it. It wouldn't shock me if either of them debuted before the end of the season. It would be much later in the year. Really, really good things happening in Cleveland. They had some, uh, they've had some real huge player development success stories. They've got, they clearly have an idea of certain types of, it's usually college right-handers who throw a lot of strikes, don't throw super hard, and they draft them and they get them in. And before you know it, they're bumping 98. And that was Bibby was like that. Obviously, Shane Bieber was like that. Savali, I think, was like that. Plezak was like that. Gavin Williams threw hard in college. He was a little bit different. But also, they took a guy there where a lot of teams were scared away because they thought there was a back issue. And he's been nothing but healthy. And the fastball is pretty elite. It really not only is a high velocity, but it really plays. It's got secondary characteristics that generate a lot of swings and misses. And, um, you know, I got had a lot of people argue with me, Bibby and Williams, pick, you know, what's your favorite flavor, right? They're they're both really good, but in kind of different ways. But I think both have a chance to help the big league club at some point this year. So Cleveland's in, they're in very good shape. I don't know how long this run lasts. They are still benefiting from some very successful international free agent classes from three, four years ago. I don't think they've backed that up more recently with similar talent, some other quanti- quantities of talent on the international side. But that's a few years down the road. And this group, the Rocchio and Valera and Angel Martinez, Tina, Young Kenzie Noel, these guys are are coming quickly and are within a year or two of helping the major league club. Yeah, this could be a team that takes a very big leap as far as its quality of the core in the near future, just with this this group of talent coming through. As far as Bo Naylor, though, you go back to 2021. We wondered coming off of a lost minor league season for everybody in 2020. What kind of performances we see that next year? He was a 21-year-old at AA, and it didn't go well. 31.5% K rate, had a 188, 280, 332 slash line, fell off a lot of prospect lists, understandably so. Mm-hmm. What did he change going into 2022 that enabled him to bounce back in such a big way? He got the Ks down, showed 20-plus home run power across the two levels, played at AA and AAA. So what was different for Bo Naylor last year? There wasn't a single simple explanation. It wasn't just... Oh, hey, we fixed his swing. Oh, hey, he, you know, he had mono and he lost a bunch of weight last year. You know, I think the I know that the Guardians folks felt like him, like he was particularly hit hard by the lost year in 2020. He was at the alt site, but 
obviously not a great development environment for kids who maybe needed more work. Um, I think that didn't help. I think be, him getting kind of an aggressive promotion in 21, being really young for his level. I mean, some guys rise to that. Some guys are ready and he what maybe wasn't. They'd made some very small changes to his swing to just try to get him in a position, especially when he got his hands started. So he's getting the bat to the ball on time more consistently and squaring it up a little bit more. I am curious to see where the bat goes from here because he went from, you know, obviously not impacting the ball in any way to actually showing probably a little more power than I'd even anticipated from him. I don't know where that settles in. I don't say, I mean, just saying it's in between the two is probably not useful. I think he's closer to last year than he was in 21. I don't know if he's quite that good, but I also see a guy who's ready to step into the majors too. And maybe he's, maybe he catches 80 games for this year and a little DH and maybe starts out in the minors just to get him just so he's not um, handed the keys on opening day. But I do think he'll probably end up catching the majority of the games for them this year, which is, like you said, kind of shocking given where we were a year ago with him, where it was like, God, I, I guess I was just wrong on this guy. I saw an athlete who played really hard, seemed to have a very high aptitude for the game, uh, who could really run for a catcher and who had a good swing. Like, yeah, you bet on those guys. And then in 21, it's just, oh, okay, yikes. Yeah, it was an aggressive promotion, as he said. He skipped high A yeah. in that lost season, so... It's a big deal. I mean, this is the Jeter Downs thing, right? Jeter Downs skipped double A. He went from high A before the pandemic, triple A out of the pandemic. I mean, flopped. He just absolutely flopped. They returned him to double A last year. He was just as bad. And then they ended up taking him off the 40. He got waived and uh, claimed by the Nationals, who've actually done a nice job, I think, kind of scouting for talent like that. Guys who've underperformed elsewhere, who were once top prospects to see if they can get something out of them with a change of scenery. But I, you know, I do think there's a lesson there. A lot of those very aggressive promotions, jumping guys over levels out, coming out of the pandemic, which I may have just been a reaction to you know, trying to keep guys at an age that was appropriate for the level. I feel like I'm seeing more cases as I go through everyone's farm systems to do team top 20s, more cases of that not working out than of it actually working out and there's a lesson there right skipping a guy over a level entirely or skipping a guy when he had you know a week of games at a level there's more downside risk than there is upside yeah yeah at least with jeter downs i think he'll get plenty of opportunities with the nats if if they see anything they like he's gonna get some big league plate appearances this year i think he was gonna still be up and down if he stayed in boston yeah I th- that's what you do if you're the nats right they're not contending this is what you do you go out and you find guys that you sign Dom. They signed Dom Smith for nothing. I think Dom Smith can hit. The Mets were very inconsistent. You know, they kept trying to play him in left field a lot. Understandably, they had Pete Alonso. I'm not saying that was wrong necessarily. They should have traded Smith a couple of years ago when his value was much, much higher. And you know what? Maybe Smith never figures it out. Maybe I'm wrong. I really think that kid can hit though. And I, I think if he just gets regular playing time and they just say, you're just playing first base and that's it. I am curious to see if if this might be his last chance, but I'm curious to see if if he breaks out. And that's the kind of move the Nats should be making. I love it when teams in their position, sort of bottom five projected teams that clearly have yeah. no real path to the playoffs, when they they take the reasonably recent top 100 prospects that have fallen out of favor and give them a fresh start. New coaching, new organization, change of scenery sometimes leads to some better results. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. 
Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. The Dodgers have a couple of, of questions on their roster, but they've got a couple of players that might be ready to answer those questions. Miguel Vargas, it sounds like based on the recent comments that Andrew Friedman made, I think it was on MLB Network Radio over the weekend, the Dodgers look at their infield right now, and they have a plan of using Max Muncy at third, Gavin Lux at short, and then Miguel Vargas at second. Miguel Vargas is probably going to hit, right, Keith? I mean, I don't think there's ever really yeah. been a oh question God, about yes. that. It's been more of yeah. a question of just where does he fit long term? Do you like this, given that Muncy's the option at third, do you like this decision as the best place to play Vargas, or do you think this is something that is really written in pencil because someone like Michael Bush could actually emerge to be the second baseman, and if that happens, they could play Vargas at third and shift things around. The tricky thing now with the Dodgers having brought in J.D. Martinez is they don't have a floating DH. So they've got one guy that unless they're going to play J.D. Martinez in left field. Oh, no, they can't do that. You can't do can't do Please. This is not this. This is this podcast is rated PG. I know. I, I but they even in the press release when they signed him, they for some reason indicated it was like DH slash outfielder. I think is what they wrote. I'm like, ooh, I don't know if he's an outfielder anymore, but. If you see him that way, good for you. First of all, J.D. Martinez might just not be good, right? That's entirely possible. And then the DH spot opens. Getting Vargas in the opening day lineup is a good move wherever he is. I'm fine with this. They they think he can play second. They said he's actually shown to be a much better athlete and runner underway than people realize, which doesn't shock me, right? Because I think there's also a little bit of stereotyping that goes on for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is, well, you're a corner guy who just kind of hits and you don't steal a lot of bases. So you're probably not a good athlete. Like, that's not that simple. I mean, shoot, Jordan Walker is a very good athlete and he's a below, he's like a 45 runner, but he's still a really good athlete. They're not, those things often overlap. The intersection of fast and good athlete is pretty high, but not 100%. And you know what? If Muncie can't play third for whatever reason, flip him, put him at second where he has played, not well, but he can play it and put Vargas back at third because we know he can play that too. I'm fine with that. Or if Muncie gets hurt again, which has happened, or, or if he's an older guy, if he starts to show some signs of decline due to his age, okay, you move him along. You know, maybe he ends up playing a little bit less and Bush comes up and ends up playing. And they're in a really good, tough, but good spot where they have multiple young players, youngish players ready to step in at several spots where they also happen to have a need. I mentioned James Outman, who made the back of my list. I think he'll at least be in the competition to be their center fielder. I don't know if he gets the job. That's probably a little bit of a stretch, but he's there. And it's not completely out of the question that he'd end up on the club, uh, whether as the everyday center fielder or just as an extra outfielder or comes up at some point during the season to play somewhere in the outfield when they have an opening. They, they have a bunch of guys knocking on the door. That's why their farm system had so many guys on my top 100 is it's it's not just upside, but it's guys who have probability because they're close. They could mix and match, kind of go with a platoon arrangement, James Outman, Trace Thompson, maybe in center field and get by with that, right? Because they've got strength at so many other spots up and down this lineup. There's one more player I wanted to bring up. There's so many more we could talk about. We'll get to them on future episodes, but someone that looks like he's got an opportunity to be a significant contributor on a contending team in 2023, 
and that's Brett Beatty. When I look at the Mets depth chart, Keith, the threshold for Brett Beatty to kind of break through is to offer more with the bat than one of Eduardo Escobar or Daniel Vogelbach. That doesn't seem like a big ask to me for Brett Beatty. No, I think he can really hit. Really, really hit. I mean, I've always bought the bat, and all he's basically done is hit. And they made some little changes with him last year, small changes to the hand position to get him just try to hit the ball in the air a little bit more. Like you're big, you're huge, you're strong, there's power. He may never end up a 30 homer guy because I think that's just a little bit more of a swing change, but I don't think it's out of the question necessarily in his at his peak. He just may not get there right now. Um, but I like his potential to produce offensively right now a lot more than either of the guys you named, for example. And I think he's fine at third base. I like him better at third. There was talk, well, they signed Correa, maybe he has to go to the outfield, et cetera. I like Beatty a lot more at third base, where I think his first step is fine, but he doesn't have to go cover a lot of distance more at third base than in left field anyway. So, you know, he's another guy who should be in that rookie of the year conversation. And maybe he's got a little bit of an edge over Carroll less because of the position speed, but Beatty might be more likely to just kind of hit for average and a bunch of doubles and homers. And that is the kind of thing that works with certain voters. Like he's definitely on that list. If you're trying to handicap the, you know, who are your top three rookie of the year candidates in the NL, those guys have jobs and they've performed in the upper levels of the minors where I don't think there's a ton of question, a ton of uncertainty of whether they're not, whether or not they're going to hit right out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, Beatty, 312, 406, 544 last year, and he was young for the level at AA, having just turned 23 yep. in November. He was 19 and change, close to 19 and a half at the draft, and people, even even people in the industry, were kind of on the Mets. Like, how do you take a 19 and a half year old high school position player, um, who especially when he's not up the middle, in the first round in the draft and it was their belief he could really really hit and they were right and i'm not saying this you know it's not going to work out 100 of the time we shouldn't ignore age in high school players but he's one of the best examples i can think of of a guy who was really pretty old for his draft class and bobby witt jr was 19 at the draft jordan lawler was 19 i think at the draft or almost 19 you know those guys worked out the one thing is if you take a guy like that and now obviously you're next season there's no short seasons you are sending him directly a full season low a He's 20. If he performs there, though, he's back on track. He's high A or even double A at 21, double A or triple A at 22. He's fine relative to his age. It is the question becomes, do you think this guy can go to low A next year at 20 and hit? You don't have the extra year essentially to work with. But I'm saying this in a way of giving Mark Tremuto was the scouting director at the time, him and his staff credit because that was their bet. We think this guy can really hit and he'll be able to make that leap. And they were correct. Yeah, it's worked out so far. And I wouldn't be surprised if it works out at the big league level for Brett Beatty here in 2023. Of course, a ton of players on the list that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But check out Keith's top 100 list. Get a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash baseball show. $2 a month gets you in the door for the first year. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.